All right, hey, if you have a Bible, grab that and go to Matthew 4. Matthew chapter 4, if you need a Bible, there's Bibles on the chairs there in front of you, around you. If you are using one of those Bibles from the chairs, go to page 632. Matthew chapter 4, page 632. And uh, even though I have the verses on the screen, I always encourage you to have it open in front of you or turned on in front of you if you're using the electronic version. Um, because how do you know I'm not making this stuff up? How do you know I didn't just put something up on the screen and tell you that came from Matthew chapter 4? Right? You need to see it. And as we're going to see this morning, a perfect example, you need to be able to see the context of those verses, what comes before and after. Because it's very easy for me to throw a verse up and say, well, here's what it means. But I don't determine what it means. The context does. So get that, Matthew chapter 4. Question for you. I'm full of questions this morning. This is an easy one. How many of you have ever, at least once in your life, been tempted to sin? Yeah. Now, if you don't have your hand up or you are questioning whether that's the case, uh, it's 1 John 1.8, I believe, where John says, uh, if we say that we do not have sin, then we lie and deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Listen, every person, every person, every person, and I, and I don't even have to exclude Jesus from this one, has been tempted. Every person has been tempted. And I think because you're able to answer yes to that question this morning, you've been tempted, you'll be able to identify with the verses this morning very easily. Very easily. Now, yes, it's, it's Jesus being tempted. It is Jesus, right? I mean, he's Jesus and you're not. There's your, there's your, your clear statement for this morning. You're Jesus. Uh, he's Jesus, you're not, right? In case we were wondering. But it, it is something we'll be able to identify with this morning. Here's where we're going. Jesus endured temptation so that we could overcome temptation. He endured it so that we could overcome it. And so as we are tracking our way through this F260 reading plan, last week we hit the New Testament. We saw Jesus comes on the scene. He's the one who's the answer to the promises of the Old Testament, the one that the Old Testament has been pointing to. And now God himself has come taking on uh, human, human flesh. He has become human in the person of Jesus. Now, one of the things that we often forget when we think about Jesus, when we think about Jesus, most of us, most of us, if we've grown up in church or we've been around Sunday school or VBS, we think about Jesus being God. And we think about the God side of Jesus. And Jesus did wonderful things and miraculous things. But we sometimes fail to remember that as, as much as he was God, he was 100% God, fully God, embodied in Jesus. He was also 100% humanity. And we don't tend to think about Jesus as humanity very often. But it's very clear in the scriptures, as you read through the Gospels, you find out Jesus got tired, he, he had to rest, he, he gets thirsty, so he has to drink, he gets hungry, so he has to eat. Um, there, there, there's things about Jesus that, that every one of us have had to, to go through just like he had to go through, right? So he was born as a baby. He had to grow up. There's things he had to learn. He wasn't born as an infant, newborn, and know how to walk. He had to learn how to walk just like every one of us had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk just like every one of us had to learn how to talk. He had to, to learn about math and, and writing and the, and the things like that that you and I learn when we go to school, just in his culture, whatever that, that would be. He had to learn those same things. He, he was born as a human. And he's fully God and he's fully human all in one person. 
Now, remember last week we talked about the Trinity and we said there's never going to be a time where it's going to make sense in our mind that God can be three persons, three distinct persons, beings, and yet one God. It would make no sense to us. It's, it's never going to make sense to us if we try to just understand it. This is another one of those things that will never make sense to us if you try to understand it. Because we, we are human in a human body. But Jesus was human and God in a human body. And he was 100% of both. And, and his, his God nature and his human nature existed side by side in his human body. And they didn't overlap. In other words, his, his God nature didn't compensate for what was lacking in his human nature. And his human nature didn't compensate for something in the God nature. He was 100% he was all the time. But what we see, and, and, and I'm doing this to, to help us understand why are we about to see Jesus being tempted? How is that even possible? Because what we see is that Jesus came in the form of humanity, taking on real human flesh, being a real human person, experiencing many and most of the things that all of us humans experience. The one thing he never experienced that we do is sin. Because as the author of Hebrews would say, he was like us in every way except without sin. Okay, so he wasn't born with the impact and the, the infection that sin brings into our lives. But yet he was very real human, which means as we see him go get tempted, these are real temptations. He really felt these temptations. Whether he could give in to them or not, that's a debate for centuries that have been going on. And we're not going to tackle that this morning. But Jesus endured temptation so that we could overcome temptation. So let's go to Matthew chapter 4. And by the way, you can also read about this temptation in Luke chapter 4. Right? And, it's, and there, there's just two different um, viewpoints on the perspective. I mean, on the, on the, uh, the temptation. So Matthew chapter 4, we're going to look at this morning. And let's start with verse 1. Right before we read verse 1, here's what happened. He just finished getting baptized. He showed up on the scene, John the Baptist. By the way, I meant to clarify that last week. I kept talking about John the Baptist. He's not a Southern Baptist. He's not a Northern Baptist or an Independent Baptist. He was a person who baptized people. And that's why we call him John the Baptist. Okay, Just so, just so you were wondering about that, I, I thought about that and I forgot to say it. So verse 1 then follows him being baptized. And, and if you remember his baptism, he goes underwater, he comes out, and the Spirit comes down like a dove and descends upon Jesus. And we hear from the heavens the voice of God the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, in Him I am very well pleased. And the very next thing that happens after that we find in chapter 4, verse 1, Then, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Verse 2, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Let's, let's just stop there for a moment. Let's, let's, let's see what's going on. So then Jesus, right after he's baptized, then Jesus was, and do you see what it says? Led by the Spirit. See, there's a, there's a pattern that takes place in the life of Jesus that you pick up in all of the Gospels, but John in his Gospel, and we're not looking at John today, but in John's Gospel, this is something he more explicitly puts out. Jesus' pattern for living was this. Even though he's fully God and he's fully human, when he came in the human flesh, he decided his own decision between him and the, and the other people of God, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They all decided that when Jesus comes... He's going to choose not to act in all of his godness. He'll still be fully God, but he's going to willingly choose to lay down some of his rights to act in that God power, so to speak. 
so that he has to learn certain things, so that he has to go through certain things, so that he cannot avoid certain things. Even though it was entirely possible for him to do so, the, the perfect example would, would be, why didn't he just climb off, the cross, climb off the cross? Why didn't he just stop himself from even going there? He's fully God. Could he have stopped himself? Absolutely. But he chose not to. Instead, what you see the pattern is, Jesus lives his life in submission to God the Father, and in dependence on God the Spirit. And so when Jesus acts and he performs his miracles and he does things, he's, he, even though he's fully capable of doing that in his own power as Jesus, the Son, instead the pattern we see is that he's doing that in the power of the Spirit as he submits to God the Father. Because a common phrase that you'll come across in particularly John, Jesus says, I cannot do anything unless I see the Father doing it. I cannot speak unless I hear the Father saying it. So Jesus is submitting himself to the will of the Father, and he's living his life in dependence upon the Spirit, which is why it's an accurate thing for us to say we look to the way Jesus lived, and there is a model for us in that. But what we're not saying is just be morally good, like Jesus was morally good. You'll fail at that miserably. But what we, what we mean to say is the, the, the things that Jesus did, they're right, they're good, yes, yes. But what we really want to model after Jesus is submitting our life to God and living our life in dependence upon the Spirit of God. And as we do that, then we carry out the way that the Lord wants us to live. And so Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He was led by the Spirit specifically to be tempted by the devil. Now, does, does the wilderness ring any bells for you? If you think back, if, if, you, if you've been tracking through our reading plan or if you remember anything from your, your early Sunday, day, uh, Sunday school days, do you remember any other people that spent some time in the wilderness? Yeah, yeah. And, and specifically when we get to verse 2, for 40 days and 40 nights, that, that 40 should ring a bell for us. We're talking about the people of God in the Old Testament, Israel, right? Where they wandered in the desert for 40 years because of their disobedience in, in the land. And so here we've got Jesus being led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, when we oftentimes will go to the temptation of Jesus, and if you have a devotion book or a study book of some kind, a lot of times what they're going to emphasize in this story is how Jesus combated the temptations, how he resisted. And we're going to talk about that, but that's not the main point. There is something far bigger going on here. Jesus is not just going to be tempted and we learn how to resist temptation from him. No, no, no. There's a greater plan that's taking place. Jesus is going and he's going to follow the pattern of the old people of God so that he can then create a new people of God. He's going to be led into the, the, the wilderness by the Spirit just like the people of God in, in Old Testament Israel was led into the wilderness by God. Okay? And he's going to be tempted by the devil. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute. But that word tempted, now, it can be tempted or tested. Same word gets translated two different ways. It really depends on who it's speaking about. If the, if the devil or an enemy of God is, is the one doing the action, then it's usually translated tempting. But the very same word is translated as testing when, say, Jesus is testing them to see what was in their hearts. So when James in the New Testament tells us not to blame God when we are tempted because God doesn't tempt, that's an accurate statement. God doesn't tempt, but God does test. And he's, he's leading Jesus into the, the wilderness to be tempted by the devil 
And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Now, let me just pause for a moment because here's the, here's the thing I want to put before you. Some of you may be experiencing temptation. Maybe you're facing opposition. Maybe you're facing temptation, and it's a constant battle for you. And it's causing you to wonder, does God really love you? Because if God really loved you, you reason, then I wouldn't be dealing with this temptation. And I just want to point out something here. It was God who led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What if the temptation that you are facing is also God testing to see what's in your heart? What if the temptation that you're facing right now or have been is God using that to show you what's in your heart so that you will then take that to him and not continue to just battle with temptation and and win sometimes and lose other times, but instead run to him and say, God, you're showing me something. Here's a weakness here. There's, There's sin lurking here, and I need you to deal with that. What if the tempting that you're going through is also a testing? Keep that in mind. Because this is part of God's divine plan, that Jesus would go be tempted by the devil. And if it was part of God's divine plan for Jesus to be tempted, do you think that you and I might experience some temptation also at some point? Absolutely. But it may be part of his plan as well. Last point before we move on from these verses. He was tempted by the devil. Our temptation, when we sin or when we're tempted to sin, is the devil made me do it. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. He's Jesus. Chances are that you and I will never be tempted by the devil himself. Demonic activity, demonic torment, sure, absolutely. But don't lose sight that there's other things that that can be behind the temptation. It can be just the simple fact that we live in a world that is impacted by sin, that is corrupted and has fallen in its nature just like we are. And so the things that exist in the world, they're meant to be a counterfeit to the things of God. And if there's things in the world that we live in and that we interact with that are meant to be a counterfeit to the things of God, there's a good chance that that at some point is going to tempt us to live in counterfeit ways, right? And then also besides that, we are people who are still impacted by sin. If you've trusted in Christ, then you are free from the power of sin. You're not condemned um, by, because of that sin, sin, but you still deal with it. It's still there until Christ comes back and our bodies are made new. So it's also possible that the temptation that happens is just the sin that is still lurking within us, in our minds, our hearts, our physical bodies. And so you find yourself oftentimes Really, it's an excuse and shifting blame so that you are not held responsible for your sin. And we say, the devil made me do it. That's likely not going to be the case for anyone in this room because we're not Jesus, and he is. All right, so let's let's keep going here. Let's go to verse 3 now. And we're going to see now Jesus tempted. He's tempted three different times. And remember I said that there's a, there's a bigger picture going on here. Jesus is, is going to be following the pattern of the old people of God, the people of Israel, so that he can make a new people of God. He's going to endure temptation, but he's going to do so in a very specific pattern. So look at verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
All right, so, so what's going on here is now Jesus has fasted for 40 days, 40 nights. He's hungry. Have you ever been so hungry that you're willing to do anything to eat? Have you ever gotten hangry? Okay, honesty right there. Yeah, absolutely, right? When you're hangry, there is, there's physiological things that happen, right? Where you don't think clearly. People all of a sudden, they're no longer people. They're obstacles between you and your next meal, right? They, they, these, are, these, are, these are the things that happen when we get hangry, when, when, we, when we're hungry. It changes us and, and it shapes the way we treat people, the way we look at situations. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. You can imagine he was hungry at the very least, right? When we're hungry, we're also vulnerable. This is a time where Jesus is now in the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. He's on his own. He's, he's alone and he's hungry. Okay? He's vulnerable. That's when the devil steps in. That's when he steps in and he says, if you are the son of God. Now, the devil has been around for a while, hasn't he? The, the devil was created by God before humanity was created by God. He's one of those divine beings that, that somewhere along the way he rebelled against God. Right? He, and he was clearly already in rebellion against God before Genesis 3 when he shows up in the form of a serpent in the garden, right? He's been a, 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 around for a while. Do you think that the devil at this point understands something about the plan of God and the Messiah that's going to come? He's not omniscient. He doesn't know all things. There's only one person who's omniscient. That's God. Right? There's nobody else who's omniscient who knows absolutely everything. The devil's a created being. He's limited in what he knows. But he has been around for millennium. However long that is, right? However long the, the, the earth has been created and then before that. He has been around. He has seen the plan of God unfolding. He has the same access to the same scriptures that we have access to. And he knows them very well, right? And he sees the unfolding of God's plan. In fact, wasn't he told in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 that there's going to be a day where, where a seed of a woman is going to come and, and, and is going to crush the head of a seed of a serpent? Wasn't he told that? He knows God has a plan to bring someone to oppose him and be victorious over him. So when he says, if you are the son of God, I tend to think that he knows Jesus is. This is not a, a question of are you really? But instead what he's doing is prove it. If you really are, prove it. And prove it by turning that, that stone right there into bread. Because you're hungry. Now let me, let, me, let me stop for a minute. I've been telling our, our, uh, our middle schoolers, our youth that have been sitting up front here that I'm going to call them out one day. And I haven't done that yet. I want to speak specifically to you guys just for a moment. But y'all listen in because this is, this is just as much for you. If someone ever says to you, if you really are who you say you are, or if you want to know that I love you, like you, if you want to belong to my friend group, then do this. Don't do it. If someone's asking you to, to prove something to them in order for you to be valued, to, 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 to have worth or to be accepted by them, don't do it. That, that's, not, that's not what you're going to get from that. That's exactly what, what the devil's doing to Jesus. If you are who you say you are, prove it. See, he's asking, the, the, the devil's asking Jesus to validate, to prove that he is who he says he is. But Jesus has no requirement, no obligation to prove himself to anyone. 
And if you're a child of God, and if you've trusted in Christ, he has called you his child. This is for all of you too. Your identity is secure in Christ. You don't have to prove it by living a certain way to earn it. Okay? It's given to you freely in Christ. And then the way we live is a response to what was freely given. We don't accept something by grace as a gift, undeserved, and then live like we've got to earn it. It doesn't work that way. You will be ensnared, you will be enslaved, and all the while Jesus has died to set you free from that. If you are the Son of God, then do this. Command these stones to turn to bread. And Jesus quotes some scripture to him. And now he's going to quote scripture to the devil three different times, and all three times it's coming from the book of Deuteronomy. You got it. That's the book that you all spent your morning devotions in this morning. This is the book that you run to when you say, I just need a word from God. And so then you go and you open up to Deuteronomy in your Old Testament, the, the fifth book there that's mostly filled with laws. This is the one where you go to and you go, I need a word from God. And so Deuteronomy is going to give it. Right? Right? You, you do your devotions in Deuteronomy, don't you? And yet Jesus is going to quote three times from the book of Deuteronomy. Now, he's not just quoting from the book of Deuteronomy because these are the verses he had memorized. And so these are the ones he recalls. It's very specific why he's going to quote from Deuteronomy. Because he's following a pattern. He's, he's tracing the steps of the people of the Old Testament, Israel, so that he can create a new people. And so he goes first, he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. And I'm going to give us a little context here. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 8, 1, 2, and 3, what, what Moses is telling the people of Israel before they go in the land is obey the Lord. Obey him when you get in the land. And so then we pick up and, and Moses is still, is still talking to him and he says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you, pay attention to this, he's led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Do you see the similarity already? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights. Moses is saying to the people as they're about to enter the land after wandering for 40 years, remember, remember that the Lord God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. And why did he do that? Why did he bring the people into the wilderness and lead them for 40 years? That he might humble you, testing you. If we were in Greek, okay, now this is going to be Hebrew, but if we were in Greek, that's the word. But do you see it's different because God's the one doing it right now, not the devil. He's testing you to know what was in your heart, where you would keep, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna. Remember the bread that came down from, from the sky, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why did he do that? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's the verse right there that Jesus is quoting. But he's quoting that specific verse for a very specific reason. Because the temptation before him is, take that stone and turn it into bread. Do what you're able to do apart from God's provision. Take care of yourself and don't wait for the Lord to sustain you or to provide for you. That's what got the people of Israel in trouble. God's not showing up, and so therefore they go and they, they depend on other gods, or they depend upon themselves, or they're grumbling about, well, we had meat and bread in Egypt. We wish we were back there, enslaved. And so Jesus is quoting a verse that falls right out of that context, and he says, remember, 
Moses says, remember, God was testing you when you're in the wilderness to see whether you would depend upon him. Now Jesus is being tempted. He's being tempted by the devil to either depend upon God because he's hungry, right? And he could take that stone and turn in the bread. It'd be easy. He could do that. But to do that would be to depend upon him himself apart from the Spirit. Apart from the Lord, if he did that, he'd be making the same mistake, giving into the same temptation that the people of Israel gave into. And so he quotes that context, and he says, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We go on, verse 5, and he's going to get tempted again. Verse 5 says, then the devil took him to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Verse 6, and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on, the hand, on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So the next thing that happens is now the devil takes him to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem, takes him and stands him up there and says, if you're the son of God, again, asking him to prove himself, show me who you are, jump off of here. You know what he's asking him to do. Just jump off of this high building. Just do it. Don't worry about it because doesn't it say in the scriptures that he will command his angels concerning you and that on their hands he will bear you up lest you strike your foot against? He's saying you're not going to get hurt. Just jump off. God's going to take care of you. And the devil is quoting here from Psalm 91, verses, one, uh, verses 11 and 12. And he's right. He quotes it accurately. He doesn't twist the words. He doesn't misquote it. He quotes it accurately. If you go look up Psalm 91, 11, and 12, that's what you will see. The devil knows the scriptures. In fact, he knows it better than any one of us. He's been around longer. He's been exposed to them longer. He knows the word of God. And here's what he does. He takes the word of God, quotes it to Jesus and says, do this to prove you are who you say you are because here's what it says in the scriptures. Now, if Jesus were like most of us, he would go, wow, that, that is in the scriptures. You're right. And then all of a sudden now you're going down a path because someone quoted scripture to you. And this is where most false teaching comes into play. Because, and most cults, they're built on a, a little nugget of truth. And, and, and they quote the scriptures, false teaching, they quote the scriptures. You can look it up and, and you can say, that's what it says. But here's where the devil goes wrong. He quotes accurately, but he misapplies it. It's not the right application. Because if you read Psalm 91, it's talking about this believer in, in God, this one who trusts God, and, and, and it's like a warrior king type of person who trusts God. And as that warrior king goes about his life trusting God, then God is going to protect that warrior king. And that if something should come their way, their people are going to fall beside him, but he's not going to fall. And instead, uh, the Lord is going to command his angels concerning this one, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. He's talking to this person who's living a life trusting God, but what the devil's trying to do, and the way he's applying it is, test God. Prove, prove, pr make him prove that this is true. Or put yourself intentionally in a position where you're forcing God to act. Jesus 
Oh, but yeah, um, this should be 91 verse 13, sorry. Um, I'm, I'm real intrigued that Satan stopped at verse 12, by the way. In, in Psalm 91, he does 11 and he does 12. I'm really intrigued that he didn't go to verse 13 because here's what 13 says. You will tread on the lion and the adder. You know what an adder is? It's a serpent. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Why does he not quote that part? Why does he quote the two verses before that to make his point, but not include that which is clearly in the context? Because he knows this is, this is what I'm going to use. This is why you have to know your, 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 your scripture, right? And not the devotional type of knowing your scripture, but knowing big chunks of it. This is why I would much rather see people, instead of reading a devotional every day, I'd rather see you two or three days a week reading larger chunks of the Bible so that you understand the bigger picture of the Bible, that you understand the context of the Bible. Because devotionals typically will take one verse or two verses and then give you a, a nice little thought for it. And they're not, they're not always wrong, but you don't understand from a devotional what the context is. And this is why, why when people start throwing scriptures out to us, we start to just get tossed by the wind and the waves and we go wherever we want because they quoted scripture. It must be right. They quoted scripture. And false teaching quotes scripture accurately, but oftentimes just misapplies it. Or we cherry pick it, right? And so we, we pick out a verse and not understanding the context, and we, we apply it in a way it was never meant to be applied. And then we're, we're trusting God for something that he never promised. And we're putting him intentionally in a spot where he's expected to deliver to us. Let me give you a few quick examples. Uh, it's in Proverbs chapter 22. It's either 6 or 16. I can't remember the exact reference, but you know the verse. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he, was, when he is old, he will not depart from, his ways, from your ways. Train up a child in the way he will go. But I'm not going to ask you to raise hands, but some of you have experienced it, and some of you know. You've trained your child up in the way that he or she should go, and then he or she did not go that way the rest of their life. Right? Why? And maybe you lean back and go, but God, I did what you said. I trained them up. They, they did devotionals every morning. We took them to church and Sunday school and VBS and check, 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 check. But now my kid's walking in rebellion. Why? Because train up a child in the way he should go is a proverb. It's not a promise. And a proverb is meant to be a general observation. It's meant to, to, to observe something and say, this is generally true. If you train up a child the way they, they should go, then when they're old, they'll not depart. That's generally true but there are always exceptions. But when we go to the Proverbs, a book that is filled with pithy, short, pithy sayings meant for us to, 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 to memorize quick and easy, but then to unpack, and we, 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 we claim them as promises, they're not promises, they're general observations. Sometimes they don't come true. Sometimes they don't play out the way it says, but we lean on it and misapply it. Here's another one, Jeremiah 29, 11. We, we, I already ruined this for some of you guys a few week, weeks back, so I'm not going to ruin anything new, right? But Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to you know, harm you, things like that, right? That's the verse, right? And we take that verse. We don't understand the context. It's a great verse on its own. It says great things. And then we say, God's going to do things that prosper me. And then when we are not prospering, when we're sick, or when we find ourselves uh, living paycheck to paycheck, and we're going, but God, I'm living for you. Why aren't you prospering me? Why am I sick? 
We're misapplying something that God never meant to apply to us. Because remember, the context of that is the people of Israel in uh, captivity in Babylon. And he's saying to them, I know the plans I have for you. And I'm not going to leave you here to be harmed. I'm not going to leave you in captivity, but I've got plans to prosper you. But then we hear prosper and we go, well, I know what it would look like for me to prosper. And we put that on the Lord. And, and, then, and then we go, well, let me give you one more, Romans 8.28, because i got to get a New Testament one in there. 8.28. For we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to God's purpose. And we've looked at this one many, many times. But what we tend to pull out of that is we know that God causes all things to work together for good. And that's all we, we typically stand on. And then we define what we think is good and then we put that on the Lord and expect him to do that for us. See, we're quoting scripture accurately, but without the context and understanding how, it, how it's meant in the context, then we misapply it, exactly what, what the devil's doing here. And so Jesus says in verse 7, back in Matthew 4, Jesus said to him, again it is written, and this time he goes to Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. All right, so here it is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. So then you go look this up and you go, well, what happened at Massah? Well, you can find this in, I believe it's Exodus 17. The people of Israel were being led out of slavery in Egypt. They're in the desert. They're thirsty. And they're going, why did God lead us into the desert? We had food and water in Egypt. And now God's left us here in the desert and we're thirsty and we're going to die of thirst. Is God even here? And they question his presence. And they test him. And you know the way that story unfolds? God tells Moses, go in and I'm going to bring water from a rock to feed these people and to, and to satisfy these people. And from a rock in the middle of the desert, water bursts down. But Jesus quotes that one right there. Another time when the people of God, the people of Israel, were testing the Lord. They were calling into question his presence. Are you there? Because I look around and I don't see you there. And the devil is asking Jesus, throw yourself down and let's see if, if God shows up for you. He said he would. He puts him to the test, and Jesus quotes it and says, you're not to put him to the test. Don't question the Lord's presence because your experiences that you're going through. Don't, don't put the Lord in a spot where you're expecting him to deliver for you when you put yourself in a foolish spot. Okay, we've got to keep going. Verse 8. Third temptation. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Okay, pause for a minute before we get to verse 10. The temptation is this. Standing up on a mountain, you can see all the nations, all the different kingdoms. And the devil, the devil says, I will give these to you if you worship me. This is the pinnacle of the temptations. This is the big one. But before we get to that how is it that the devil can say, I will give these to you? Mm-hmm. Because if you go to John chapter 12, I want to say it's verse 31, Jesus calls the devil the ruler or the prince of this world. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul, the apostle, calls the devil the, the ruler of the kingdom of the air, another reference to, to, to um, this world that we live in. Go back to the Old Testament, and, and if you weren't with us back in January, particularly on January 12th, we did a sermon on Genesis 6. 
And we talked about the sons of God. These divine beings, these lesser little G gods that, that, that God had created as, we would call them angelic beings, right? But they're, they're divine spiritual beings that rebelled against God. And then do you remember when we got to Genesis chapter 11 in the Tower of Babel, we saw God scattering the people because they had tried to build this tower all uh, in rebellion against God and they scattered the people? But remember, we looked at the, the other side of that, Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8 and 9. And we got a glimpse of what was, what was going on behind the scenes there. And we find out in Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, that when God was scattering the nations because they were rebelling against them, he was dividing those nations up according to the number of the sons of God. He was handing over authority to all these nations to these lesser spiritual beings, these divine beings that are called sons of God in the Old Testament. But it says, but God himself inherited Israel. And so the rest of the Old Testament is unfolding and God is ruling over Israel and the plan is to win those nations back as he rules over Israel and as Israel lives out their relationship with the Lord as a kingdom of priests and a light to the nations. So God hands over authority. Well, the devil's getting up on this mountain with Jesus and he sees all those other nations, all those kingdoms, I'll give that to you. He has rightful authority to offer that because he's currently in, in possession of those things. But you have to worship me, he says. Okay, verse 10. Verse 10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So again, he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and he says, Be gone from me, Satan. And then the, the quotation is about worshiping the Lord only. Listen, this is the pinnacle temptation to shift your focus and your affection on worshiping something God has created as opposed to worshiping God who created if you are giving in to a temptation that is causing you to place your affection and to give your worship to something that's been created as opposed to the creator himself, that's what Jesus is being tempted to do. And it may be at, at, with, 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 with the offer of all kinds of things. If you will just shift your focus and shift your affection to this, then you'll have all the money, all the time, all the success, all the pleasure, whatever it is, trade this for that. Jesus endured temptation so that we could overcome temptation. So Jesus is following the specific plan. Just like the people of Israel were tempted in the wilderness for 40 years, he's tempted for 40. He's in the wilderness for 40 days and he's tempted. Just as they were tempted to depend upon themselves instead of trusting the Lord, he's told to turn that stone into bread. Just as, as they are tempted to test God and to question his presence in the midst of that, he's told to test God and throw yourself off the top of this temple. Just as they ended up worshiping other gods, and that was their downfall, Jesus is tempted to worship other things apart from God. He is following in the, the pattern and the plan of the old people of God so that he can then make a new people of God. See, Jesus had to be obedient in his life before he could be obedient in his death. 
He had to live a life of perfect obedience to the Lord so that he could meet the requirements and the standard of God and the covenant that existed so that when he died a death on behalf of sinful people, guilty people, even though he was innocent and he rose from the dead, he was able to fulfill that old covenant and now offer the new. He had to be obedient in life before he could be obedient in death. He was enduring temptation so that we could overcome it. And here's what I mean when I say overcome. Listen, if you have trusted in Christ, God has made you new. You have been spiritually made alive. And we mentioned this last week. You weren't saved from drowning. You were brought from death to life. You were spiritually made alive where before there was no life. Light came into the darkness. Right? You were given the Spirit of God who now indwells you, lives inside of you, never leaves. Everywhere you go, the presence of God is there. You are now the walking temple of God. You house the Holy Spirit. And so now the way we are supposed to live our lives is in dependence upon the Spirit. And so when I get tempted... Right? When I get tempted, now the way this sermon typically goes with Matthew 4 is just memorize scripture and quote scripture back in the midst of your temptation. Fine, do that, but you'll fail miserably every time if that's all you're doing and you're doing it in your own strength. Because you can memorize all the scripture you want, and if you're trying to do that in your own strength, because I can memorize scripture in my own strength. I've got a really great mind. I can memorize a whole heck of a lot of stuff, right? But guess what? I do that in my own strength, and then I can quote that back in pride. But if you memorize that scripture so that it is hidden in your heart and it's shaping and impacting the way you live, it's shedding light on the darkness that dwells there so that you're, you're the spirit is using it to shape and grow you, then that, that, that scripture memory comes back and it strengthens you and it guides you, and it's a light unto your path. But listen, you try to white-knuckle your way around temptation, you will fail miserably every time. Maybe you get strong enough in your own strength that you resist certain temptations, but you're never dealing with the heart. So yeah, learn scripture. But like I said, instead of just one scripture here, one scripture there, I would rather see people learn just reading bigger chunks of scripture at a time and less days a week. But if you're getting more of it and you're understanding more of who God is and how he's revealed himself, that's going to start to shape the way you live. And how do I know what's sin? How do I know what is opposed to the character of God if I don't know the character of God? And one of the primary places that God has revealed his character is in the word, in the scriptures. And we have an abundance of wealth today. The people we read about and for centuries after, they didn't have personal Bibles. They didn't have access to it. The people we read about, they got to hear the word of God when it was read on the Sabbath, on Saturdays in the synagogue, if you were a Jew, or in, in the New Testament on the Lord's Day on Sundays when a letter was written or a scroll was opened. And then you, were, you would maybe catch pieces of that audibly and let that bounce around all week long. We have the entire scripture, 66 books. We can get on our iPads, on our phones. We can have many different translations. We've got an abundance of wealth, an embarrassing abundance of wealth. So certainly, absolutely, spend time in that. Absolutely. So that you know the character of God, so that you know God. Read so that you know God. Read so that you know Him more. Not just know more about Him, but that you would know Him more. Because as you know Him more, and that relationship grows and deepens, 
then the things that come at you, you're going to go, no, that's not of God. It'll be so clear. It'll be, it'll be so much clearer when you know God. But here's the other thing. Are you facing temptation and it feels like I'm constantly being opposed and I'm never winning? Listen, if you're a believer in Christ, you should have victory over sins. Not every time necessarily, but you should be seeing some victories. If you're not seeing any victories in your life over sin ever, have you believed in Christ? Have you trusted in Jesus? Or do you say, I'm a Christian, and then you live your life like you're an atheist? In your own power, in your own strength. If you're never seeing victory, that's the question you should be asking yourself. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, there should be times where, yes, I see victory and other times I don't. And that's the battle that takes place between the spirit that lives inside of us and the flesh, the sinfulness that still lives with us. And we will experience that until Christ returns. If you're experiencing a battle on some level, praise God. Don't, don't indulge in it. But if you're experiencing a battle, praise God. Because you're alive. And darkness is coming at you. And the darkness and the light are battling. There are times where the battle is an indication of life. But listen, you don't stop there and go, well, I'm, I'm battling. You fight to win. You put to death the things that are of this world. You, you set your mind on things that are above where Christ is seated in the heavenly places. And you put to death the things that are below. You go to war with sin. You don't indulge it. You don't give it permission to stay. You don't invite it in. And you do all of that independence upon the Spirit. Lord, I'm wrestling today. That temptation is hitting me hard. Help me to resist. Lord, create a, a stronger desire in, in, in me for the things that are of you than the things that are opposed to you. God, give me the wisdom to navigate the situation where I know temptation is going to come up. God, give me the strength to be able to walk away and say no to that when it comes my way. Dependence upon the Spirit. Listen, there are great books that have been written on how to resist certain types of sin. Read them. They're good. They give you good tools. They don't deal with the heart. You can put fences between you and sin. You can then build walls between you and sin. But if you never deal with the heart, Eventually, you'll figure out how to climb those walls. Eventually, you'll find a, a, a loose brick and you'll, 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 you'll start pulling it away and scraping away at the mortar. And, and you've been there. I've been there. You know the desperateness that we will go to to give in to sin sometimes. We will do some pretty ridiculous things and give some ridiculous amount of time to just getting that, that just that, that one moment. Go to battle with it. But know this. Jesus endured it so that we could overcome it. It's possible. It's a reality for the believer in Christ. You can know victory over sin in this life, but only in Christ. All right, let's just take a moment. Let that settle. Ask the Lord, what has he got for you in this this morning?
Father, I trust that you are letting your spirit work, hitting people where they need to be hit. Let your spirit shedding light where their light needs to be shed. Humble us, Lord, that we might receive that. Remind us that we have a Savior who is risen and who is alive. And not only is he risen and alive, but you tell us in, in 1 John that he is sitting at the right hand of God the Father and he is interceding. He is our advocate. He is speaking on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. God, I pray for freedom. For those in this room today who maybe they've been ensnared by sin, maybe they've, they've never trusted in Christ, and so maybe that they're realizing it now that they, they've never known life that God gives. They've never known the type of light that comes in Christ. God, would you make that clear to them now that they would turn and, and trust in Christ and receive that life. For others, God, they're, 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 they've trusted in Christ and they've been given life, but they've been entangled and ensnared by sin. Maybe they got there accidentally. Maybe they got there unaware. Maybe they got there intentionally, but now they can't get out. God, I pray for freedom. If you're able to stand, will you stand please as we dismiss? There's a Savior, and His name is Jesus. And He's alive. And he lives to intercede on behalf of his brothers and his sisters. Your God loves you. So go from here and live as people who are loved by their God. Do that in the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. See you guys next week.